Hello and welcome back to the Perpetual Outsider podcast for The Deadly Assassin. My name is John Bensalia. Hello and welcome. Uh, Today I'm venturing back into the creepy horror of the Matrix for The Deadly Assassin Part 3. So let's uh, get all, all get behind the sofa for this one. And I'll count you down in five, four, three, two, one. Off we go. Last time, Doctor was in a deadly predicament, at the mercy of a of a, of a train. It is the stuff of nightmares, isn't it? It's real kind of. It's kind of like you know those those old radio adventures where you'd um, all those old B movies that you'd have on a on a Saturday morning. When you have the, uh, the classic clip, and it and it works really well. And here we go. <laughs> the reprise, great reprise. It's just it's nightmarish, isn't it? Re- real, real nightmare fuel, but it, it it works wonderfully well. And here he comes onto the onto the train. This is the uh, the episode that Mary Whitehouse infamously disliked. And you can kind of understand where she was <laughs> where she was coming from. I mean, for, for those that don't know, Mary Whitehouse was basically this right-wing old biddy who was this do-gooding crusader. Or she thought she was a crusader, but she was this do-gooder that just basically lived in this cosy little world of tea and buns and uh fairy cakes and this very kind of picturesque chocolate box kind of village um and just hated the thought of any kind of violence on tv um but the thing is i actually think that white house's ideal is is actually more damaging i think to kids because if you know if if you show violence and it doesn't hurt people then you know that's a really bad message to be sending out to kids and it's one that I constantly harp about with um, Moffat's Everybody Lives philosophy, which is kind of like White House actually won. You know, if, if a character would get killed off, he or she would come back to life miraculously. And I think that is a terrible message to be sending out to kids. Because, I mean, God forbid, if um, if they lose a loved one or a pet even, they'll expect it to come back to life. They'll think, oh, well, well, why didn't, you know, why didn't he, you know, he or she come back to life? Like they did. And I, I think that is a terrible message. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all for, you know, this kind of Doctor Who. I, I think, in, you know, you, you need to show that if, you know, if you perform a violent act, then violence hurts. And it's, I think that's more of a positive message to be sending out. So the Doctor has just stepped on an egg. Oh, and he's about to encounter the eyes on the cliff. <laughs> That is just a, <laughs> that is not a great special effect. <laughs> oh dear, but um, yeah, I'm sure it was very good in 1976. But uh, it's 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 all very surreal and eerie, and we're we're coming up to the, uh, the one of the most eerie aspects of this episode, which is the clown. There's just something about clowns. It's uh, oh god. <laughs> yeah, that that, that is. You, you, I, I didn't know it at the time when I when I watched the video originally. I, I thought they just brought in some random clown, 
from the local circus to do that, to do that evil laugh. But no, it's it's Bernard Horsfall doing that. And uh, yeah, creepy stuff. It's a, very, it's a very unusual episode, very ambitious. And it was really kind of pushing the boundaries of what Philip Hinchcliffe could do with Doctor Who in 1976. Could they have done it in the first season? I, I don't know, in season 12. But I think by now, I, th I think they were on such a roll. They really got the Doctor Who to such a fine art. But I think they could afford to kind of take that risk and have most of this episode on film. And it, it, it just works brilliantly. I think, but, you know, it, it's kind of moving away from the surreal aspect into, into the literal, in, literal, literal, put your false teeth in, John. But literal fight against the death. You know, you've, you've got this, um, you know, now he, Doctor's being chased by this, this fighter plane. And it's great action-adventure stuff. I suspect not having the scarf and the coat probably was because they filmed this in July 1976 when it was uh, when it was the hot summer. Absolutely sweltering, apparently. Um, I don't know. I, I suppose I do, I do have vague memories of actually going to the local park in London at that time, and you know, with mum and dad, and I, I do remember it actually being quite hot. Um, Very early childhood memory, that. Oh, watch out, Doctor. It's very, again, it, it's quite unusual for the Doctor to be this kind of vulnerable, really. I mean, when we talk about Tom Baker's Doctor, we kind of tend to think of him as, the, you know, the wise-cracking wise jelly baby offering, you know, hero. But in this, he's, re he's really put through the ringer. Really, you know, really goes through the mill in this, you know, and here, you know, it's a rare instance with, you know, the doctor, you know, doctor's blood. I mean, it's it's very unusual, but it's a bold experiment that works, I think, because it's done with such conviction, and you know, ev everybody's putting you know one hundred and ten percent into this to make it work. You know, David Maloney's direction is really, really coming into its own here. It's real feature film stuff, and and Tom Baker carries it wonderfully. And interestingly, without hardly any dialogue, it's, you know, it's you know, it's it's through you know actions rather than words. Mercifully, we don't get the eyes on the cliff again. But yeah, what I was saying before in the previous episode, it, unfortunately, you can tell that it's Bernard Horsfall. You know, it's the voice and the, and the evil laughter as well. You know, he does the evil laugh quite well, actually. There's some who can't um, do evil laughter at all. I'm thinking of, um, like, Aris in Kinder. He can't do evil laughter with a softy. <laughs> it, it doesn't help when they, you know, if you, if you do pantomime evil laughter in Doctor, you don't do it over and over again, like Aris does in Kinder, you know. Bernard Horstall, I think, keeps the wah He keeps that to a minimum. This is a good shot, actually. It's, it's a good crossfade going... Um, under underneath into the the deep caverns below, oh, the master, and we've established that he's got his his pet hunter on the loose, who's also in the Matrix. And there's there's Peter Mayock in the background, who was in uh, Pyramids of Mars the previous year, like Michael Michael Bilton was. Uh, he played uh, Ibrahim Amin, 
and uh, again, only lasted the one episode because he was um, very memorably uh, bumped off at the end of part one. The Pyramids of Mars, as uh, as the servant of Susek brought uh, brought his gift of death to all eternity, and Namin wished to help, and he kept the receipt. And here we have Bernard Horsfall as um, as the hunter. We're we're now in you know full action adventure territory here, and again you know the, de the deadly assassin is is doing this so well it it really moves between the genres without without a pause for breath actually it it does it so so well that was great zooming actually real feature film stuff so many imaginative ways of shooting this which which in the hands of a of a lesser director I think could probably turn up turn out to be quite mundane and quite ordinary and i think if it had been a lesser director working on this i'm i'm not really quite sure whether whether it would be so fondly remembered as it is today i really don't know well, somebody's about to let the toy spider loose <laughs> and of course studley's music again is punctuating the action brilliantly it's a superb superb score with kind of like, you know, those tribal drums or bongos in the background. You know, and again, and again, we've moved away from, you know, that kind of a sax kind of uh, grandiose organ sounds of part one through to, you know, a more, a more conventional brassy score, I think. And But it, it works really well. The drumming really kind of sums up this kind of tribal jungle that they're, that they're now in, which was apparently the... Um, well, well, this is the quarry, but when they get into the jungle, it was uh, apparently uh, a school. I'm, I'm not sure if, if, if the, you know, well, the school wouldn't have been open at the time if it was open, you know, because it would have been the summer holidays. But you can imagine kids watching this and, you know, venturing into that jungle and pretending to play play it being Doctor Who on, on at school on a Monday after they'd seen it. very strikingly grown up this is uh it's definitely not what you call a kid show but of, of course it, you know this it was doctor who was never a kid show it was it was something for the family which uh which is why i, I do get a bit huffy when lazy hack journalists or commentators referred to doctor who as a kid show it's, it's not a kid show it was you know it was intended for all the family you know, it, it never went out on a weekday during, you know, children's BBC or whatever. It would go out on a on a Saturday between uh Basil Brush or whatever it was and, and the generation game. It's very much part of a very a very strong lineup of that time. There was <clears throat> excuse me, there was a guy called um Brian Cowgill who who planned it to perfection really, this kind of um Saturday evening entertainment, you know, you have Basil Brush, Doctor Who, Generation Game, Duchess of Duke Street, I think by this point, the two Ronnies, Parkinson, Match of the Day. Perfect. There was something for everyone at this point. And I think that's why I get a little a little bit cheesed off about how how lame today's Saturday evening viewing is, especially in the autumn when unfortunately it's uh, it's hogged by Strictly Come Dancing. It's kind of like they have to think, oh, right, this is the centrepiece of uh, of the Saturday night entertainment. And it's just it's just water wall strictly. And for those like me who hate dancing, you know, I've, I've got two left feet. You know, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I couldn't even, you know, move one step, you know, without being a laughing stock. 
but for those like me who don't like it, and it's like two bloody hours of Strictly, that that really annoys me. And it's kind of like it's it's a complete lack of imagination. I think in modern day programming, you, you don't you don't have that kind of level of variety that you used to get. There used to be something for everyone, and unfortunately nowadays it's all about ratings. Um, and I think really the rot set in in like the you know the the, the noughties, I think because it was it was strictly versus the X Factor or whatever it was you know and it was you know it's it's always about elimination of you know celebrities or wannabe celebrities it's uh, yeah I, I've I've got to say I, I think you know nothing nothing will top the golden days of you know of the seventies um you know even when I was a little kid it, it was still you know, it was still pretty much the same by the late seventies because he still had Doctor Who Generation game, and, um, and I think some three, two, one on ITV. That that was a you know popular thing on on then. Uh, but unfortunately, you you don't, you don't get that level nowadays, which I think is a real shame. Unfortunately, I, I think it's our telly viewing habits as well. I think it does it doesn't help that you've got all these streaming channels, which I think personally I think have pretty much destroyed you know traditional TV as we know it, but. Uh, you know, there you go. I'm an old fart. What do I know? Oh, I'm, I'm talking all over the wonderful action here. Should be talking more about the deadly assassin, but uh, let's talk about. Oh no, it's uh, <laughs> the boss. <laughs> I, I was a real, I was a real sad case in uh, in the nineties because I used to do really bad impressions of the characters then, like uh, the monster does now. <laughs> I have a task for you. There may be difficulties. Others may try to prevent you from fulfilling my orders. You will ignore them and obey only me. You will let nothing stop you. Understand? <laughs> yes. And I remember, I, I, I don't know why I used to do that. I don't know why I still do. Um, He's got such an unusual voice, and uh, yeah, there, there are other. Yeah, I mean, Engin and Spandrel. I mean, you know, they're quite easy to mimic, and also Kettlewell and Robot was another one. A Grinsky in City of Death. They, they, uh, BBC Video used to release very, um, very easy. They, they used to release stories with uh, characters you can mimic quite easily. And back into the Matrix. Yeah, it's, it's great stuff. I mean, the, the Doctor, you know, he, he can't fall back on his usual wisecracks or witticisms. He has to use his brains, which he does very well. I mean, he, he twigs that um, Goff was actually poisoned water, so he can't drink it. So he has to, you know, use his ingenuity to actually find a way to um, actually uh, have a quick fix for his dehydration without poisoning himself. And, you know, it, it's very very cleverly thought out, I think. How much has he got in that in that rucksack of his? I mean, he's you know he he's he's got the ideal um, no the the ideal starter kit for any kind of uh, wannabe assassin there really. <laughs> and unfortunately, the doctor that you know he he didn't get that, but uh, I suppose the master very kindly provided it for him. You know, so here is your rucksack full of equipment. Off. <laughs> Oh, 
again, it's uh, you know, it, it's kind of like a silent film, really. There, there's no, there's no real dialogue. You know, there's hardly any dialogue between the two, except for a few um, shouting threats, which I think Goff is going to do in a minute. He's going to say that you know he's very close, etc. But largely, it's uh, it's actions rather than words. But it, it's a it's a very bold experiment that I think works. Dudley's music again, really, really helping things along. I don't, I don't think it would have worked quite well if um, if there'd been no incidental music like uh, like some episodes do. <clears throat> and of course, when they uh, when they repeated this in the August of nineteen seventy seven, they uh, they cut out the cliffhanger, um, and it was kind of like um, White House. Going back to White House, it's like she won. Which is uh, which is a shame, really. I think um, you know. I, th I think I think I would have liked to have seen more from Philip Hinchcliffe uh, and his work on Doctor Who. I, I think he, you know, I think you know, it's a shame he didn't do at least one more season. I think, but um, there you go. But in a in a funny kind of way today, it's kind of like it's kind of like White House One because any suggestion of this kind of violence, you know, not just in Doctor Who. But in um, you know various other drama programs, and you don't get that. You don't um, you don't get to see Grizzly Death anymore in Doctor Who, hardly. Um, you, you don't get this kind of level of drama. And I think it is you know it, it goes back to that whole kind of everybody lives philosophy, which it it does you know maybe it won't send kids screaming behind a sofa, but it does result in rather emasculated drama, which which I don't really think works. Of course, you know that you know the one exception to the rule. I think was Heaven Sent, which I think was brilliant, and I still do. Ooh. I suppose the uh, the concerned viewers at the time they probably had a problem with you know real life weapons like guns and you know poison darts and that sort of thing. Things that you know that, you know happen in you know everyday life. This looks especially painful, this sequence. The doctor being shot, and again, you know, there's blood there, blood on his arm, and, and that fall from the tree, and Goff having to inject himself with, you know, some antitoxin, which evidently, evidently looks really painful. It's amazing what you can do with, um, you know, the location of an old school, and, uh, and, uh, and a Proved two, you know, two actors really. Peter Mayock again, only getting, uh, only getting a couple of lines this time. He's he's a good actor. Um, sadly passed away in uh, quite young, actually. I think about late nineteen nineties. I think he's very good. You know, it, it's a you know, it's it's a minimal role, but he. He he brings everything that he can to the part, and it, and he does it very well. God, the doctor's knackered here, isn't he? <laughs> he he really looks like he he just wants to settle down for a quick power nap, but obviously he can't because Goff will probably come along and you know sort of stab him in the back or something. But even Goff is, I think, is uh, 
he's struggling here. You know, he's you know he's now having to limp. Sorry. <laughs> Very polite about it again, isn't he? You know, he said, you know, oh, I'm going to kill with Oxford, but uh, sorry. <laughs> There's a lot of baffle gab in this. I wonder how the actors actually, um, how they actually manage with that. You know, it's, um, it's it's a lot to get your head around. I mean, excitonic circuitry and all of that. And uh, how how on earth do you remember that? I can never be an actor. I just, you know, I mean, I I, I don't know what it takes to actually, um, you know, do, you know, sort of say lines convincingly. Um, and also the memory as well. My memory these days is like a sieve. I, I can't remember what I did yesterday, never mind having to learn lines over and over again and reciting them in the in a TV studio or on a stage or, you know, in a movie. I could never do that. So hats off to these actors. This master is nothing like the, the genial old, you know, the genial... Roger Delgado version at all is it's nothing but pure hate and that zooming into the master's eye just now so we're getting into the big uh, the big cliffhanger now with uh, the, doc the doctrine of got and goth in the march gas and it's probably the, you know probably one of the most adult sequences of Doctor Who it's, it's quite you know it is quite graphic I suppose for this time and it's really the um, the ultimate expression of uh, Hinchcliffe and Holmes's vision for Doctor Who, I think, which is to you know kind of kind of introduce the you know the more adult viewers in, you know, rather than just kids. You know, you've got the whole family. Oh, there he is. There's God. And you you know you've got older teenagers and you know the mums and dads watching it as well. But it's like Tom Baker said, if you watch from behind the sofa and you. And you're frightened of Doctor Who. It's still in a healthy environment. You're, you're watching it with mum, dad, brother, sister, granny, granddad, and you look around and there's, you know, there's tea, there's, you know, there's dinner, there's, you know, steak and chips or whatever. It's all in a in a healthy environment. So you know, none of this is real, even if, even if it is pushing the limits, like with with this bit here. Brilliantly filmed. We're about to get into the big, big fight to the death with the infamous drowning cliffhanger. I've, I, th I think the, the fight is generally well staged, but unfortunately it, it is a little bit obvious in the... Um, where, where they're not close-ups on the Doctrine Goth, when they're kind of like shooting from a little bit further away, unfortunately you can tell that they're, act that they're stunt doubles. I mean, one minute the doctor's got wet hair, the next minute he's got a very obvious curly wig on, <laughs> which doesn't really get that wet. I, I don't know why. But here we go with the, uh, oh, the big drowning, which is, mm, oh, I don't know. I, I, I think it's okay, but um, I can understand if kids were a little bit frightened of seeing their hero uh, with free... You know, not just drowning, but you know the the freeze frame as well. They shoot it really well, and that was the 
and that bit was actually cut out of the of the repeat, which faded in August '77. They actually they um, just faded up. They faded the credits in early with Goff saying "Finish, Doctor, you finished," and then cutting out that final shot of the freeze frame of the Doctor's head underwater. But I think it's a really effective cliffhanger, very dramatic, and that's exactly what you want. But obviously, Mary Whitehouse did not agree with me. A unique episode that. Absolutely spellbinding. You, you just can't take your eyes off it, really. Um, I enjoyed that immensely, and I hope you enjoyed that too. Anyway, join me for the final thrilling episode of The Deadly Assassin very soon. But in the meantime, goodbye for now. <laughs>